It's good to be here. I think you're technically um, my grandparents, I believe, in church planting terms. Um, today we're going to look at what it means to pioneer with God. And we're going to look at the story of Joshua. Uh, Joshua, chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can begin to find that. But as Phil said, my, together with my wife, we're starting a new church. It's a partnership between St. Peter's and another church in, in London called KXC. And we're at the beginning of a journey. And the journey is one that we don't know the full destination. We don't actually know the place where we're going to end up. But God has initiated and started this seed within us to see a church come alive. And so we've been meeting with the team. In fact, the third row back here of gorgeous people here are all on the team here. Give us a little wave. There they are. So if you actually want to find out the truth, you can ask them. But I'm having a great time, and we're, we're, we've begun to meet on Wednesdays and to pray and to establish a culture of following Jesus together, that when we land in a place, we'd have a way of being that we can invite other people into. So we're on a journey, which we don't fully know the destination. And uh, it's a real privilege to be here. Now, your story is our story. It's, it's everything Phil has just been praying and sharing about is true. We're united in a common vision to see Jesus lifted up in East London. And we're connected by a common story, common relationships. And so um, we're in this together. It's a real privilege to be sharing today. So why are we um, church planting? Well, personally for me, it's become my conviction over the years. Actually, the church is the most fascinating and most wonderful thing there is. In all its frail beauty... It is the best representation of the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of the universe. It is the body of Christ, the clearest representation of Jesus on earth. And it was actually a, quite a hard thing for me to believe, quite a hard thing for all of us to believe sometimes. I'm sure sometimes you turn up, the first person you hug smells of BO, next person has bad coffee breath, the music's too loud, the music's too quiet. Sometimes you look around and think, really? Or is it just me? <laughs> is, is, is this... Is this it? But the reality is, in amongst the cracks, and in fact, sometimes the very presence of the most ugly parts of church, is the reality that it's a manifestation of a God who so loved the world that he would embrace even the most ashamed and fragile parts and make them beautiful. We're a depiction of the salvation of Jesus, the first fruits of what is to come. The church is the most interesting thing you can ever be part of. The most fascinating thing, the only truly remarkable thing, because it's the first fruits of what's coming. It's the beginning of a new creation with a foretaste and the anticipation of Jesus returning to put all things right. It's pretty good news. It's actually amazing. For me, it was confusing at church for a long time because uh, my dad's a vicar. And in fact, we were just reminiscing at Christmas about this because my, my dad uh, actually looks like Santa Claus. He's short, short and fat, white beard. And I would have this peculiar experience every Christmas uh, when I was a kid of, of going and, 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 and people say, well, we're going to, to see baby Jesus. Okay, we're going to see baby Jesus. Um, and then my dad, uh, his birthday is on Christmas Day. So we go, it's like, it's dad's birthday. No, it's Jesus' birthday. My, my dad looks like Santa Claus. No, no, Santa Claus doesn't exist. Oh, okay. Baby Jesus is real, but you can't see him. 
but your dad looks like Santa. I mean, it was a complete nightmare. It was a very confusing childhood. But it, it meant that actually, besides Christmas, I experienced the very kind of, like, actually, the inner workings of church. All that I'm talking about, the, the, the brokenness and, and the beauty. But it is the presence of those things together that makes the church so remarkable. You know, we're so um, impressed, aren't we, so easily. Well, I'm so impressed by, by things in London. Things that work, big things. I love the tube, actually. That's amazing if everything about it. The tube just works all the time. It's just fa- fantastic. There's so many things that impress us. So many powerful people, fantastic people to look up to. But the church, we don't need to set our mark against the world. You know, actually, the story we're in is the story of kingdom, the kingdom of God. Our job is to anticipate and to be the foretaste of the kingdom of God. And in that, fulfill the world's story. The one thing we have to do is to point ourselves towards the kingdom of God. And the great kind of conspiracy is that we actually fulfill the world's story because the world's story is Jesus. One day he will return to put all things to right. As Eugene Peterson says in, in, at the end of his translation of Ephesians, the world is not peripheral to the church, but the church is... Did I get that the wrong way around? Yeah, I think I did. The church is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. You're at the very center of the most significant story. And, and the church is an expanding thing. It's a growing thing. It may not always feel like it in the West, but it grows and it grows all over the world. It's never stopped. That vine that we were just praying about is growing. Since Jesus first sent the first disciples, the call has not rescinded, has not stopped to make new believers, new disciples who disciple more disciples and more disciples and more disciples. And that great call to go is a part of every church. And so we're looking at this, this word pioneer. To start something new. To go somewhere that no one has been before that others would then be able to go. Now you may not feel personally like you're a pioneer, that's something that, that sort of naturally fits with you. But at, at some time in our life, we'll all have to pioneer. And in fact, every church has seasons of pioneering. It's a pattern between going and dwelling, bedding your roots down deep, and then sending out seeds, as we were praying about just now. We're all called to be part of it. So the, the purpose today is just to, to, to share, really, from my experience of, of the last few months, what it might look like to pioneer with God. Because there are all kinds of pioneers, aren't there? You think of great pioneers, inventors. I think Dyson's my favorite inventor, you know, with the fancy heavers. He's, he's pretty good. But there's explorers, people that discovered new places like Captain Cook. The suffragettes that this year we mark a, a century since women have got the vote and on the streets around here. Should we do that a little round of applause? Yeah, I think we should do a little round of applause. That would be good. The suffragettes pioneered in the streets, a way for justice to happen. We think of all these great businessmen, the Wright brothers who first made a plane, and then Elon Musk that's just blown out of the water and wants to get to the moon. He's mad, but maybe he'll do it. There are all kinds of pioneers, but what does it look like to pioneer with God? And to do that, we're going to look at Joshua 3. And just to remind you, um, the story so far is God created all things, went a bit wrong, the harmony and the, and the peace that we had with God in the Garden of Eden was disturbed. And then God would not let that be the end of the story. His heart moves towards reconciliation with his people. And ultimately, all, all the themes, all the stories in the Old Testament, they, they come crashing like a wave down on the life of Jesus. 
everything, every longing of the Old Testament. So when we read this story now, we have to hold Jesus in front of us, in our mind and our hearts as we read it. And this is a story that happens a little bit after the Garden of Eden and all that went wrong there, when God's people got taken into slavery to Egypt for 400 years. And then God raised up Moses, who said to the most powerful man in the world at the time, a kind of stable genius character like Donald Trump, uh, he said, let my people go. And Moses led them out, raised his staff, and the seas parted, and the people went through the Red Sea, and to the land that God had always promised them. There were people with the promise of a land, but they took a wrong turn. It took a day to get the people out. But it took 40 years of wandering the desert to get Egypt out of the people. And slavery and, and the condition of being uh, a slave is, 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 is something that, that we've been thinking about a bit as the community, the plant team, as we start to meet. How might we live free lives? How might we live lives with Jesus, being with him? How might we live lives being like him? And how might we live lives doing the things that Jesus did? And in this phase where we're wandering, where we don't know where we're going to end up, this is a time where we're able to look really seriously at how our lives are being formed. And that's what happened to the people of God in this time. They, they, were, they were purified of what it was to be a slave and, and set free to become sons and daughters. And then the day came, finally, after 40 years of wrong turns, they arrived at the banks of the River Jordan to cross through and to be uh, sent forth into the land God had promised. So I'll read um, a bit from Joshua 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, what a name, and went to the Jordan, where they camped before the crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. When you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters. Go and stand in the river. And then down to verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. 
And so this amazing moment where Moses has passed to Joshua and he leads the people into all that has been promised. An incredible moment of pioneering and and the call on Joshua in, in chapter one was to be strong and courageous. A repeated refrain three times throughout chapter one, be strong and be courageous. Like all the pioneers I listed earlier, be strong and be courageous, do your thing. But actually what happens next and what I've just read shows maybe some different dynamics of pioneering that are perhaps distinct if we're to pioneer with God. The first is in verse 5 where it says, consecrate yourselves. Joshua told the people, verse 5, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things of you. We're to consecrate ourselves. It's a call to live a life and a pursuit of holiness. Not an obvious start to pioneering. You see, when you pioneer, when you're in the position on the frontier of something, you become, I've become so aware of myself. And, and the danger is that you take yourself a little bit too seriously. And you think that this is down to you. You think if you don't show up, it's not going to happen. But the pursuit to holiness, this, this, this consecration, which was just a ceremony of making yourself clean, it reminds us that we can't do it. We can't do it by ourselves. None of us can be holy without God. None of us can be clean without the forgiveness of God. The call to holiness is a call to that sense of, I need you, God. I need your spirit to breathe upon me. I need to be holy because I want to be in your presence. Because holiness is the very atmosphere of heaven. We read in Revelation, the anthem is holy, holy, holy. It's the fragrance of God, and none of us can be holy without him. Yet in Jesus, the game is is totally changed, and no ceremony is needed, but the cross is made a way for all of us to be called holy in his sight. So holiness boils down to our proximity to Jesus. And my proximity to Jesus um, becomes a point of tension when I'm so obsessed with my own life and my own plans that there's no space for him. When I'm so obsessed with thinking that this relies on me that I can no longer be surrendered to the one who is holy. The call to consecration is a call vital to godly pioneering because you, you quite simply learn to laugh at yourself. <laughs> And to realize that you can't do this. And to realize that you can't even be holy. You know, we're not the finished product. We have glimpses and and over time pursuing Jesus. Our lives become more and more flavored by and patterned. But we're not there. You know, purity in the Old Testament is often about stark boundaries. But I've said purity and holiness is about Jesus. It's proximity to Jesus. Purity isn't a line that you cross. It's a person you know. It's a journey you're on. It's a trajectory that you're heading. And our need for holiness reminds us of our need for God and reminds us that we just can't do this. Godly pioneering involves a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of surrender to Jesus. Unholiness and pioneering works its way out in two ways. Firstly, self-reliance. And this leads ultimately to a position of arrogance. And I remember, I actually didn't grow up in, in a context where I knew what the word leader was in Christian terms. I obviously, I knew what the word was. I wasn't, you know, I knew the word. Leaders, political people. But I, when I first became a Christian, when I was in my t- teenage years, everyone just esteemed this word servant. That was like the big thing. Like the badge of honor was being a servant, serving. 
And then when I got to uni, everyone was like, you're such a leader. And I honestly, I had no idea what people were talking about. I, like, I really did, just didn't get what that, that meant. But I kind of quickly sort of understood that leadership was about doing things. And I like doing things. There were lots and lots of opportunities. And I kind of OD'd on leadership when I first kind of sort of stepped into doing stuff. And my second year of uni was a bit of a write-off. I did everything. I mean, like everything you could think of, I tried to do it. And, and would do it like with great veracity and uh, ceaseless energy until the point that I became totally self-reliant. And my life actually just had a little bit of the rug came under my feet. Um, I couldn't keep my lifestyle straight. I couldn't keep all my commitments straight. I'd have a new idea every day. Things were going wrong. I was like making, and I just totally like in the summer crashed. I had to like do a complete restart in my life. I was so obsessed with myself that I forgot that this is all about Jesus. This is all about reliance on Jesus. And the second thing, and perhaps more important, and something that all of us in one way will feel, the second way in which unholiness works its way out in godly pioneering or lack of godly pioneering is in comparison. And we know that comparison is a total killer stops you in your tracks. And if, if self-reliance leads you to a level of exertion and activity as an individual or as a church, that means that you're no longer reliant on God and you feel the pressure just to keep going, keep going. Comparison actually stops you in your tracks normally. It stops you from even going. Comparison gives you that, that kind of awful choice of to feel inferior or superior to somebody. And in that process, what you're actually doing is you're putting somebody else on the stage of your life. You're stopping thinking seriously about what you need to do. And you're making it all about that person and, and how they're so awful and you're so much better. Or that person, how you can never be as good as them. You'll never be quite good enough to do the thing that they're doing. Comparison kills you. You know, there's that great moment with Peter, isn't there? And, you know, like at Easter time, we had the story of Jesus and Peter having breakfast. Peter, who's been an ultimate kind of muppet and has denied Jesus, really like down in the dumps, moping on the beach, uh, meets Jesus, who makes him breakfast. And then the mood music comes on, soft focus, Jesus and Peter face to face, eye to eye. And Jesus is that whole feed my sheep thing, do you love me, blah, 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 blah. And this amazing reinstatement, like the ultimate almost like soppy end, apart from the gospels are quite real. And at that moment, Peter is looking at Jesus and he sees John walk by. And it says literally, he, he, Peter goes, uh-huh, what about him? <laughs> What a ridiculous response. In the, in the moment when Jesus is talking face to face, all the things that you're called to, Peter's first response, he sees somebody that threatens him. What about him? And Jesus replies five words, five incredible words. What is it to you? And then he says, you follow me. What is it to you? You follow me. We live in a time where of status and anxiety, one writer talks about it, where we're just obsessed with where we fit in the pecking order and where we are. And social media becomes this mirror. You know, Facebook, Facebook on the wall. Who am I? <laughs> Instagram, Instagram, tell me who I really am. The mirror we need first and foremost, we need to put Jesus in the mirror, to have such an image of Jesus lifted up and exalted and yet humble and reaching to us that we forget a little bit about ourselves for a moment. And then in that moment of calling him beloved, he speaks his words of love over us and calls us beloved. So if you're struggling with comparison, 
when you get home, take a pen, Sharpie, something that's really permanent, that's going to take months of awkwardness to get off, and write on your mirror the word beloved. And in that, you're in the encounter of, of, of this passage, John 21, where Jesus says to Peter, I love you. And in that moment of, of calling him beloved and being called beloved, that's the only appropriate way to glimpse someone in the, in the corner of the reflection. That's the way we recalibrate a healthy view of who we are, who God is, and who other people are. Because it kills me. It kills me sometimes. And that's one of the vulnerable things about church planting, is there's so many unknowns, it's easy to panic and to look around. Oh, what are they doing? Oh, what's the other bit? Oh, no, look at that. That's really working. That's awful. When you're finding yourself having an issue with other people's kingdom success, you've got an issue that you definitely have. But it is like, probably we sort of know that. It's quite sad that comparison lands when we find ourselves struggling with someone's success rather than celebrating it. And it's a vulnerable moment, but it is a killer. And it stops you. It stops you stepping into, it stopped Peter stepping into who he really was. So holiness, reject self-reliance. Reject comparison. Feast on Jesus. Yesterday we did this exercise with this guy. He, we just wrote up all the just things that people knew about Jesus that he did. Feeding the 5,000, healing the woman who was bleeding, all the things. Boom, 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 boom. Do that. Feast on Jesus. Obsess about Jesus. Take yourself less seriously. Laugh at yourself. Even as a church, pioneering can become so serious. We've got to do this thing. Just laugh. We're moppets. We're called to be holy. We're called to be with Jesus. So secondly, if the first is to consecrate yourself, secondly, uh, feet first. This is a call to paradigm-shifting faith. And, and, and as I read, the call was for the priests to put their feet in the water and then for the water to move. The great double trick and play in their minds as their great story was that Moses parted the waters and then they crossed. But now it's been flipped around and they're being told to put their feet in the water before the water has gone. Now, pioneering and, and, and a lot of like pioneering can, can boil down to, in, in normal terms, a gambler, a gamble, just gambling. And gambling is, is just a big risk on a reward, you can imagine. You know, 10 to 1 odds, why not? Go to the dogs, get 100 quid. You're just risking on a reward you can imagine. But there are moments in the lives of people of faith and moments in every church where you have to risk not knowing what the reward will be. Because the weight of the kingdom rests on those that walk in obedience. And sometimes God cultivates obedient hearts by asking us to do things which we don't know <laughs> what the outcome will be. Abraham, go to a land I will show you. And that terrifying scene where almost as if he's going to sacrifice his son and then a lamb appears. And he would never have known that that was actually a foreshadow of Jesus. Noah built a boat in a desert. Ridiculous. A boat in a desert. Who does that? And Jesus called the disciples and said, I'll make you fishers of men. They had no idea what that meant. They had nets and they fished for fish. But they left their nets and they followed him. There were moments of paradigm shifting faith. Where if we want to step into the deepest parts of pioneering with God, we do things that we don't know what the outcome will be. We're trying to do that at the moment. That's why we've started before having a place fixed and all these other things. Because we want to have that experience of raw obedience with Jesus. Where we don't actually have a plan unless he guides us. We don't have an outcome unless he gives it. But we want to be close to Jesus. 
it involves sometimes that raw thing of, of like David. He took off the armor and he fought Goliath with just the stones. It involves that kind of um, sometimes unshackling from things that have been unhealthy. Things that even in the church and, and, and in the world around us have, have stopped reliant pioneering with God. It can be lonely, this, and it can be hard. It is sacrifi- it's sacrificial. These are the kind of stories that look great afterwards, but at the time, it's just white knuckles. These are when the, 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 the finances are looking a bit roping. You have no idea how you're going to do it, but you, you feel you should do it. But this isn't just an excuse for madness, just as a little caveat. Because if you take this to the extreme, then any mad idea, you'd be like, well, that must be God. It's like, no, no, <laughs> of course not. This is still done together. It's still done in community. It's still discerned what we, what we should do in the way God has ordained leadership in the church. It's just that you, you know, people might discern not independently to do things in which you don't know what the outcome is. I just wanted to say as a caveat, this is just not for madness, basically. And lastly, um, I think Godly pioneering with God in, in, in this story of Joshua teaches us that we should carry stones, which is a call to have humility and a right relationship to the past. At the beginning of chapter 4, they're asked to take 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and to carry them forward to remember what had already always happened. Now, the, the, the deal with this is so important because it isn't saying make a museum of what God had done and then camp around it. But take the stones so you can go on and do all that they did in the promised land. We're not to make a museum of the past but to carry with us the stories and the encouragement of what has happened before us, to honor. It's partly why it's just an instant yes for me to come here. I had other stuff on, but I was like, I've got to move it. I've got to move it. I want to come here because we would not be doing what we're doing if it wasn't for you and for this church. None of, it, none of what we're doing now would have existed if people in this church hadn't prayed fast to give and generously sent so it's right and appropriate that I'll come and just say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a house of faith, a house of generosity, a house of ambition. Thank you for that. But if I just say, oh, that's good. Let's uh, camp around the stone of what St. Paul Shadwell did in 2010. It won't be faithful to you. It won't be honoring of you. I heard recently, tradition is not wearing your grandfather's hat, but going out and buying a new one like he did. If I want to be faithful and honoring of of you, we're going to do the same. We're going to do more. We want to live in the story that you're living in. And so, Paul, I think this is a moment of, of, of recognizing that you've got stones to carry forward, but not a museum to make. You've got more ahead of you than you have behind you. A moment of new pioneering, I think, is emerging in your midst. And this is time to think seriously about what would that look like to do with God. Not just good ideas, not just great finances, not just great leaders, but raw obedience to God. And so in conclusion, to pioneer of God, you actually have to do it. (laughs) It ultimately happens by starting and by doing it. So consecrate yourself. Live a life pursuing holiness, not selfish ambition. Be free from comparison and free in the full knowledge that he loves for you. Put your feet in first. From time to time, take risks that you have no idea how they will pan out just because you think it's obedience. And that, in that way, you will see extraordinary things. That the testimony, the only testimony is that Jesus is alive. And carry the stones. 
Be humble, honor the past, but don't make a museum. And I wonder, there'll be some of you that feel that actually you know or you're feeling now that there's a particular role of pioneering within you, but all of us are called to be part of this. And all of us are called to follow Jesus. I just want to pray for you as as you stand. You see, Jesus goes before you. He goes out into the world. And when we pioneer, we meet him and the people and the places we go. This is from Jesus and this is for Jesus. This is not despite of him, but totally with him. All of us are called to play a part in this story of the church. All of us are called to, at times, dwell deeply. And some of us, at times, are called to go. So would you um, just open yourself up to God's presence now, however you feel comfortable. I'm going to pray. Jesus, you are the great pioneer. In your death and in your resurrection ascension, you created a way that the church would be only ever living in your story only ever living in your economy. We step out with you and to you. And and I pray now for those that are here, that your spirit would come. You would anoint a fresh wave and a wind of pioneering spirit in this church, that it would become more than it could in human terms because it relies on you. And if, if you have a real sense that God is speaking to you about pioneering, just as a way, not for me, but for God, just cooperating with that, just put your hand in the air now. Jesus, I pray particularly for those who have raised their hands, those that are calling this sense to go out, to leave harbour, to follow you and to do things that haven't been done before, to reach people that haven't been reached before, to start businesses that no one has dreamed of, to establish communities and pathways that people couldn't possibly imagine right now. I pray your holy fire would rest in their hearts now. I pray for an anointing of the Holy Spirit that that releases joy, that releases abandoned worship, that releases primarily not just strength and and ambition for ourselves, but a strength and ambition for Jesus. I pray for a love and a devotion in this church to rise, an affection for Jesus that's contagious. I pray for pioneers that are yielded to you, Jesus. And I pray for pioneers that do it, that actually do it, that go to the places, that make the stuff happen. I pray for grit and for grizzle in this church that it would pioneer through hard times and good times. I thank you for the heritage that it has. I thank you for all that has happened. And we leverage the future and the past and say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. 